Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and I'm happy to say that today on this show, we have Travis Linneman, who has written a wonderful book called Meth Wars, Police Media Power. Uh, I don't ordinarily conduct many interviews anymore, but I got a note from the publisher, NYU Press, about this book, and I've been involved in the recovery community for many, many years, and whenever a book like this, a significant book about the war on drugs and recovery comes across my desk. I try to make time to do an interview and I'm glad I did because Travis has written a really interesting book about meth in particular. Travis and I, as you'll find out in the course of the interview are both from the Midwest. In fact, we're both from Kansas, which is uh, I think the first time on this show that I've had somebody from Kansas. That can't be true. But anyway, two Kansans talking about meth wars. I think it's going to be an interesting interview. So Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Travis Lemon, obviously. I'm a uh, assistant professor of justice studies at Eastern Kentucky University, which is in Richmond, Kentucky. Uh, I'm a sociologist by training. Um, I'm in my third year at Eastern Kentucky, and I was at Old Dominion University uh, for three years uh, in the course of writing this book as well. Mm-hmm. Now, you had... Um a life before academia. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, I, you know, I've kind of, I, I feel like I've been around. I, I came to academia a little bit late in life. Um, like a lot of people, I suppose, uh, that write about criminal justice and criminal justice issues. Um, I started out as a practitioner. Um, I, you know, I got an uh, exposure to it early on, uh, working in youth group homes and just kind of, uh, you know, jumped from job to job until I ended up as an intensive probation officer in uh, Manhattan, Kansas. Um, and that was around 1998. And that's kind of what introduced me to the, uh, the you know, what would eventually be the uh, framework and topic of the book. Uh, so 1998, uh, the state and federal governments were really um, ramping up or broadcasting uh, concern, uh, alarmist kind of warnings about um, methamphetamine. Um, so I would attend trainings um, and receive instruction from my supervisors and from the courts about the issues uh, allegedly surrounding meth. And I'd go in the field and, um, you know, look for those things. And, and oftentimes I didn't find, the, you know, the, the instructions that I was receiving from my supervisors and the rhetoric coming from state and federal governments was necessarily lining up with my observations. So uh, several years later, I found myself in graduate school and I was looking for a topic for a, a dissertation and um, started reviewing you know, literature on drug war in general with an eye to write something on mass imprisonment, particularly how mass imprisonment might actually be observed and um, you know, how we could document the effects of mass imprisonment in small communities in the rural Midwest where I'm from. Um, and I just kept coming back to meth, uh, either from uh, 
key kind of signposts in the literature, but also um, conversations that I had with key people, whether they were academics or, or practitioners in the field. The kind of this, this juncture between political rhetoric and my experiences as a practitioner and also you know, somebody that grew up in a small town in, in Kansas, uh, you know, led me to think that there might be a useful question there for, for a dissertation project. Mm-hmm. So the topic found you. You didn't find the topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like I, I, I tried to avoid it for several years, and it just kept, just kept coming back. Yeah, well, it's a very important topic. It's, it's certainly something that Americans think about a lot. I think if I've read your book correctly, they probably think about it too much. But let's begin with what is really the theoretical framework for the book and one key concept, and that is the methamphetamine imaginary, which you talk about in the introduction. I don't think many people are going to be familiar with this um, terminology. Can you describe what an imaginary is and what the methamphetamine imaginary is? Yeah, I, you know, I'm kind of drawing from a, a lot of different places, and so I kind of have my my own take on, on Zizek's uh, Lacanian framework. Um, but basically, the methamphetamine imaginary describes how people imagine their relationships uh, to one another, to the community, to the world through this particular drug. Um, and then also that branches in more broadly to the idea of, of, a, of a drug war imaginary. So, so how everyday interactions can be uh, structured by this notion of a very harmful substance in the community, um, people who use this harmful substance in the, in the community, um, and how that might pattern everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I look, I look to, um, literature, uh, film, television, but also the, you know, the words and actions of, of everyday people mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to see how this imaginary effect might be at work. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say one of the things that you and I both know, being from the Midwest and all, is uh, how it is associated with the Midwest, and particularly the rural Midwest. Oh, ab- absolutely. That's what I, I found particularly useful about um, meth, or at least interesting about meth, is that it's you know perhaps the only drug that's more you know most strongly associated with not only the Midwest but with working class white people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mentioned my interest in, in mass imprisonment. Mass imprisonment is oftentimes associated with uh, people of color and, and, you know, cities and, and cities, uh, central cities in particular. And so in thinking about how mass imprisonment might appear um, in the rural Midwest, you know, this, this drug that you know, we were really um, ramping up you know, uh, interest in also, uh, strategies on how to control it in, in the late nineties, um, made kind of a useful sort of lens, uh, to, to think about, uh, these questions, but also, um, a way to kind of understand class and race in a, in a, a unique way, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the context of the mass imprisonment. What, well, I, I first encountered methamphetamine, let's just put it that way, uh, in the eighties, and in the 80s, um, I was in the Midwest, and at that time, it was well below the radar. It was not a drug of choice for uh, almost anybody, but uh, except I had heard that bikers did it a lot, although I never met a biker who did it. <laughs> to be with you. Um, right. I knew that it was called crank, but I only learned that later sure. after encountering it, and a lot of it was from Germany. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what was up with that, but in any event. Huh. Um, the, the in the 90s, as you say, it really became a focus both for law enforcement and then a little bit later 
for the media. Can you talk about how methamphetamine became a a focus of attention for these folks? Sure. Well, you know, I think part of the reason it was off the radar is because it was so strongly associated with, you know, a small population of folks, whether it be the, uh, the outlaw motorcycle um, subculture, but also just associated with working class whites. And at that, you know, to that point in inner history of drug control, we haven't necessarily focused on working class whites as a uh, population that's necessarily at risk or so-called uh, or supposedly responsible for, um, you know, the ills of a particular drug. Um, so, you know, when I, I think certain police agents, uh, certain politicians wanted to uh, draw attention to their jurisdictions and to their constituents, but also bring in money, uh, methamphetamine lent itself as a nice kind of ideological tool to say, hey, look, we have we have problems with drugs here. You know, we have um, we you know we have drug uh, drug war terrain here as well. And you know, to kind of move the discourse from the city to um, the country was particularly viable, I think. And then for the media, that just made a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's a very it's a very useful and old tale. The, you know, the demise of uh, of rurality, the de- uh, the demise or the threatened wholesome landscapes of of the breadbasket or uh, middle America or the heartland. So, um, regardless how that how something like this might happen, whether it be the collapse of family farms or you know the rise of a particularly nox- noxious drug focused on on this particular part of the country, that that tale um, is I think particularly enticing and um, useful or, in, you know, interesting for some folks. So I think that's why, um, you know, the rise in meth happened when it did um, and, and why, it, you know, it's continued to be associated with, you know, certain segments of the population, certain spaces. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you again that when, when, when I first encountered it, uh, it was in Arkansas, actually, uh, and I was, of all things, working at a sawmill, and it was not a recreational drug. It was being used by guys I worked with to help them get through the day because the work that we did, sure. uh, I didn't do it. I'll be honest with you. At that time, I did not do it. Uh, but there were a lot of guys who did. But, you know, they worked. They had to do these jobs that were incredibly hard uh, and monotonous. And so they would do a little mm-hmm. of it. And it would, you know, it would it would be like a, a, a you know, it was an aid to them. I don't know how else to put it. It was not something you went home and did. It was something you did before you went to work. Sure, absolutely. And you know, I've, you know, I've, I've run across and experienced, you know, just via interviews and um, comments from other users, you know, the, the meat packing industry, particularly in Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa. Um, that, that is a, a common assertion that folks, you know, continue to use this drug to pick up extra shifts. Yeah, and it so that, and, yeah that does make it, and it worked. I can tell you, these guys worked a lot harder than <laughs> I did. I'm not sure it was good for them, but they did it. Um, because at the time in the '80s, again, the focus was really on um, well, first of all, it was on intravenous drug use because of AIDS, but it was really on cocaine, um, which I didn't encounter right. very much in the Midwest because it's too expensive. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, and you know, also less on on, on cocaine and, and more on crack. So yeah, crack exactly. You crack. Yes. Com- sorry. Yeah. Make the comment that that because that was associated with with people of color in the inner city that you know the drug war kind of laid off uh, the rural Midwest for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can Can you point to any particular moment or series, couple of years in which it really burst onto the kind of public consciousness? I don't remember. That's an honest question. I really don't know. Well, I, you know, I think that the, the threat of, you know, what they called clandestine labs or uh, clan labs, you know, the, the quote unquote mom and pop cook, what, you know, what police call Beavis and Butthead cookers, these um, local, local people involved in uh, the drug culture that set up labs, you know, in, in their garage or in their basement and produce just enough methamphetamine for themselves and other people. Um, I think that that particular kind of the way that it, uh, you know, brought a certain sort of spatialization uh, to communities and because, you know, the production is harmful to the environment, it's harmful to the people that are in the environment, it can be uh, explosive, these sorts of things. It, you know, had a way of localizing uh, the threat in in a way, and you know, this wasn't necessarily just drugs being trafficked in from from Mexico, so to speak. These, you know, these were drugs being produced by potentially somebody next door. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, I think that made it that was that was particularly um, kind of alarming for for everyday people. But then again, I think it was compounded by the fact that the the feds didn't really track um, methamphetamine at all until the late 90s and didn't track um, meth labs in any sort of uh, systematic way until then. So when they started to do it, you know, they had a kind of natural um, explosion, so to speak, in the number of labs that they were uh, able to report on. So all of a sudden they had this, you know, in a way, socially constructed phenomenon. They started recording on it at a certain time. And they said, oh, you know, from year X to year Y, we've had, you know, this percent increase. Um, so used in a kind of a disingenuous sort of way, you know, you have a ready-made uh, epidemic. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if, if those uh, stats, I would be pretty surprised to find that those stats necessarily reflected an actual change in production and more were just not a, uh, a reflection of uh, improved recording practices um, that made it look like there is this explosion. Yeah, I, I see just what you mean. I think those things. I, I was going to say, even in the early '80s, when I first encountered it, and some of it was from Germany, I was told by people, I won't say who, that you could make it from Sudafed, and I thought that was kind of amazing. Oh, yeah. And then I lost track of it for a long time. Must have been 15 years. And then I went to buy Sudafed at the drugstore, and they told me they needed my ID. <laughs> And I did yeah. not understand that at all. And then I thought back, I thought, hmm, what's going on there? Yeah, that, that's kind of a consequence of uh, legislation that kind of occurred at the tail end of what, what I would consider the, you know, the federal government's real interest in methamphetamine in 2005. Um, there was state legislation, kind of model legislation that uh, sprung up in states like Oklahoma and Kansas that uh, sought to restrict pseudoephedrine, which is kind of one of the main precursors for that type of local small uh, methamphetamine production. Um, and then it was passed as part of, uh, part of the Patriot Act in 2005, the re-up of the Patriot Act. Uh, so there's a small writer 
or a provision called the Combat Methamphetamine Act that was included in the Patriot Act that made pseudo-federal restrictions federal law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a component of you know, what I would call the methamphetamine imaginary almost. So when you, know, when you encounter this restriction, you know, you're, you're led or you're almost uh, you know, forced to wonder you know, why do we have these restrictions? Um, what types of, of, of people are in the community that cause such a law and, and how might they still be, you know, in, you know, in play in the everyday. And this was at the same time, I have to say, this was in, I guess, 2005, between 2005, 2010. And I came to understand that all of my students were on Adderall. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was I was sort of wondering about the hypocrisy of this, but you know. Well, yeah, Adderall is widely prescribed, and you know, methamphetamine has been sold legally under the brand name Desoxin for yes, seventy Desoxin. years in the yeah. United States. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, it is very much kind of contradictory. But, uh-huh. yeah. Um, yeah. So, please aren't that. So in your research, you talk a lot about the way in which the press and the media have taken uh, this uh, to town, so to say. And one of the things you discuss is, um, of course, Breaking Bad, which was kind of a revelation to me. I watched it, and I thought it was entertaining. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure, yeah. I, I use Breaking Bad to kind of uh, more explain or, or, or flesh out this idea of the imaginary. So um, Breaking Bad, you know, tells the the, the story, this really interesting, captivating story of Walter White, just a, a you know a average everyday chemistry teacher, well, brilliant chemistry teacher, who uh, you know gets ill and is forced to um, enter the drug trade as a way to provide for his family should he die. Um, and so, um, the, the the narrative of the story basically it, it hinges upon or, or focuses on methamphetamine. So you know. Uh, I think the most gravitating part of the of, of the series is its characters, particularly Walter White. You know, you begin you know really caring about the guy, and you're constantly flipping back and forth in um, you know having empathy for him, but then also hating his actions. And he really does kind of become a monster. So his transformation from a you know milk toast chemistry t- teacher to a drug kingpin, this you know monstru- monstrous murderer hinges upon methamphetamine. And, and so I think that's a, a very useful sort of uh, window into this idea, you know, when a crime occurs, um, do we go searching for, you know, the old standby stereotypical um, explanations? Was the person on drugs? Um, were they stealing to provide for their, for their, um, for their habit. And with Walter White, we, we asked those same sort of things, you know, did he do it to provide for his family or did he do it because he was a uh, power hungry megalomaniac? And I think the question we should have been asking all along that, the, that uh, Breaking Bad never really gets at is why was a decent school teacher um, without decent uh, health care, sure. without uh, life insurance for his family and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but our fixation on the lure of the drug trade and, and the darkness of the violence that obviously is always connected to the drug trade always, I think, tends to overshadow that. So if it does it in, in the, uh, you know, in the imaginary with Walter White, I think we can also look for the ways that we use methamphetamine in the drug war also to overshadow kind of some of these more grim realities of everyday life mm-hmm. for people 
you know, in the, in the re- quote unquote real world. So, yeah. Um, well, this so sort again, of, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say it sort of takes me back to the guys that I knew in the sawmill and other people I met later. One of the things that breaking bad doesn't do is talk about the end users of uh, Walter White's products. And uh, you, you gain no information about them other than there are a couple of characters in the show who are described as tweakers, I think, and they are completely helpless, mm-hmm. <laughs> completely 100% helpless. That's not my experience with people that use this stuff. Oh, uh, no, no. Yeah. And you know, again, the question's not asked, well, why are they using it? Or, you know, what else is going on in their life? Uh, they're, they're just kind of degraded, degraded junkies without any sort of human agency or, or, um, you know, complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, that's a thing that we tend to, we tend to do with people that we deem uh, drug users or addicts. Yeah. It, it was a kind of startling omission from breaking bad because a standard sort of mm, sub narrative in, uh, these sorts of television productions or movies is they usually follow an end user. I'm thinking of something called Traffic, which was originally a German production. And, oh, yeah. and then it, and, and in that, you do actually follow somebody who is a user of heroin. It's a, it's one, it's a politician's daughter, if I recall correctly. And, you know, she crashes and burns, um, pretty dramatically. Um, but that's completely absent from this. You don't ever meet an end user, as far as I know, in Breaking Bad. Not, not so much. I think the two, you know, very stereotypical, you know, quote unquote, meth heads. Um, their characters, their names are even uh, Spooge and Skank. Yeah, exactly. Those are the guys I'm thinking about. Yeah, right. Those are exactly the guys I'm talking about. And they are not typical. <laughs> not in my experience. And abuse, abuse their child, and you know, yeah, all this, all the stereotypical things that we associate with drug users. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, a strong omission. Um, from there's a lot of omissions, I think, from from Breaking Bad. Well, you know, it I is, do like the show. It's TV, <laughs> we can't. So right. one, one right. of the things I'm particularly interested in is uh, the epidemiology of uh, meth, and you talk a little bit about it. Do we have any idea um, about how many Americans use it, or whether there have been an increase or a decrease or anything like that? Are there any reliable indicators of it? And I, and I ask that with a certain degree of skepticism because. This is the kind of thing people lie about. So I, sure. I, I don't know how you would get good stats on this. Right. You know, the, the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, which has its problems and has been critiqued pretty widely, is, is, uh, is the source of data that government um, agencies tend to point to. So it's, you know, the best sort of data that I think that government agencies have, um, particularly long term. And... Um, that survey has shown over probably the, like the last five or six years, um, less than one tenth of one uh, percent of the population uses meth, according to that survey. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be, you know, say it's wrong, say it's say it's really wrong. Double that, double it again, double yeah, that, sure. and we're still we're still not anywhere near the the you know the the number of people that the same survey says uh, you know abuses prescription drugs, for instance. Or alcohol, or any number um, of different so, drugs, yeah. Yeah, so for, you know, they, they report around, it's been pretty stable, um, you know, 450,000 people, according to that survey in the most recent year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so not a lot, not a lot, particularly for, you know, the amount of time that this is up, occupied in, in our popular culture, I think. Um, again, the actual representation of, of this drug in the community probably doesn't uh, meet 
what what our, our popular culture suggests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in uh, how it became associated with the Midwest. And let me ask another epidemiological question. Is there any evidence that people use it more in the Midwest than any place else? Anecdotal evidence. There's some pretty interesting and good work by um, Ralph Wieshite at Illinois State University, and he's actually done some some GIS mapping of of meth labs, um, and then also um, seizure data. And um, you know his his kind of conclusion was that meth markets tend to spring up in geographical locations that are absent of a cocaine supply. Mm-hmm. So in out of the way rural places that don't have, you know, connection to cocaine markets, methamphetamine might, particularly, you know, the early production in, in clandestine labs um, and, 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 you know, by local producers um, kind of filled a, a, a stimulant void, so to speak. Um, if you couldn't get cocaine, you, you know, methamphetamine was an option. And so I guess it follows, you know, they've called meth poor man's cocaine for, yep. for years. White man's crack also, I've heard mm-hmm. from users. Um, so that seems plausible. Um, you know, the first, uh, Philip Jenkins, a historian at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, wrote a paper in, or a paper and a book, and I believe 1991, and the first uh, meth markets that the uh, federal agencies had identified and that he discusses, um, Pennsylvania, uh, particularly Philadelphia, and that was associated, again, with a uh, outlaw motorcycle group. But then the West Coast and Hawaii. Um, and so at that time, um, you know, particularly the rural Midwest was not considered you know, borrowing from Nick Redding's book, Methland. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that there was a uh, a considerable amount of uh, cultural and political work that helped kind of push the narrative and, and fix it um, in states like Iowa and in Kansas and mm-hmm. Missouri in particular. Uh, but then also, you know, some some significant um, changes, like I said, with the the lab uh, production rates and things like that, helped kind of bolster that narrative. Mm-hmm. Do we have any idea how much of it is produced in mom and pop labs and how much of it is produced in kind of factories in Mexico or someplace else? Well, yeah, I mean, the the 2005 Combat uh, Methamphetamine Act, you know, the federal government would, will tell you that um, that act and also the, you know, the state legislation before that significantly um, interrupted the clandestine production in the United States. Um, I'm a little skeptical of that. And I think I, you know, I try to show this in the book that the lab uh, seizure rates, at least in states like Kansas were dropping prior to the imposition of those laws. Um, but it is usefully, usefully lined up, I think uh, at least politically with a uh, renewed focused on focus on um, Mexican drug cartels. So now, you know, there's actual, um, policy papers and, and even, you know, speeches and these sorts of things that in, in very certain terms say we've solved the uh, clandestine methamphetamine problem, uh, but that hasn't, uh, you know, reduced demand. Now meth is coming from Mexico via cartels. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the DEA, we're we're looking at uh, Mexican cartels for uh, 
meth trafficking in the early nineties. And I don't think, I don't think that, uh, that ever really changed, uh, much, um, on the, you know, on the importation end. So I think it's more of a, a political device to accomplish other things. Um, and, and kind of bolster the threat of Mexican uh, Mexican drug trafficking. Yeah, I, I would say, and I don't know for a fact, but I don't think that meth is terribly attractive to drug cartels and such because there's not a lot of money in it. It's too it's powerful and yeah, pretty would, cheap to make. Think. Yeah, that, yeah, that's just my guess. Now let's um, go. Uh, that I saw a little bit like your book crossed my desk. I saw a number of years ago, whenever it came out, uh, Nick. Redding's book, Methland, and we interviewed him. I interviewed him about the book. And the book um, was featured on the front uh, cover of the New York Times Sunday Book Review, which is every publisher and author's dream. Um, And I talked to Dick, and he's a sensible guy. And he went to a place I knew. I was actually teaching at the University of Iowa at the time. And I knew where Old Wine was. (laughs) I'd been there. can you talk yep. a little bit about the about that book and its reception and production and so on and so forth? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think his book, it, it is a, it's an interesting book, but I think it, what it does is it taps into this idea of a threatened way of life and a threatened land. Um, I found it very interesting. He, he Admittedly, he settled on Iowa and Olvine in particular because he you know, found some people that would talk to him. Um, and so, you know, he could have settled on Marysville, Kansas, which is where I grew up and, and maybe have written the same sort of book. I, I get that sense. Um, so I think that there was definitely at least a market for the uh, combination of this idea of declining rurality, declining place, uh, threatened uh, America, threatened American sort of life. Um, and particularly attractive when combined with crime and drugs and you know, this so-called depravity of, of the drug scene. Um, so I think that those things combined made the book particularly attractive. Um, and it, it, it offered something that a lot of the, you know, the literature, both academic and, and more popular press stuff, uh, hadn't up to that point was the idea of the drug war, um, landing in, in middle, middle America in a very kind of captivating sort of way. Um, I think the most telling sort of thing is, um, the reception that the book, got from residents of Olvine. I, I actually uh, made a special trip and spent a, spent a couple of days uh, in that area to take a look at it uh, and to get a sense if it really was, you know, meth land. And, you know, it seemed very familiar to me. It was very much like the town I grew up in. Uh, it was, you know, nice Midwestern farm town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the folks, the folks there, I think, were a little put off or taken aback by the representation uh, of their community. But, Interestingly, I think that part of their objection wasn't necessarily, you know, the problem with with meth. I think that in in many ways they embrace this idea that they they have, you know, big city social problems as well. But their their objection was more on like recovery and and how the community um, had rebounded from the problems that they saw. Um, being associated with meth, but you know, the things that they pointed out were all things related to the economy. Mm-hmm. They weren't related to the, to, to methamphetamine. They related to economic development. And, um, so I think they saw the community going through problems like a lot of small place, 
small towns in, in the rural Midwest are experiencing, have been experiencing, and they kind of transpose mess onto those problems um, in, in a way to kind of, I think, maybe avoid them or make them a little easier to understand. And then solve the, solve the maybe the disappearance of the meth problem or the uh, ability to, do, to address the, the meth problem, not so much associated with, with this, the kind of political economic situation that the community was facing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, responses from the community on message boards and in, in reviews of, of, of meth land. And, you know, that's one of the things that they focused on. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I, I, I guess having read the book, I think Nick did a service in bringing this to, to the attention of a lot of people, primarily on the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, I, 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 again, being from the Midwest, I, I don't uh, particularly find myself supporting this narrative. That there's been some long secular decline. Uh, things have changed a lot. People in the Midwest move a lot. They change jobs a lot. Um, it's it's yeah. a very... Uh, it's an evolving place. It always has been. You know, one of the things that always surprises me is how little people from the East and West Coast know about light industry in places like Allwine and how important it is. You, know, you mentioned sure. the meatpacking yeah. industry. It's absolutely fundamental to many places like that. In Allwine, it was the railroad. The railroad was huge there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, if you go there, there were some really neat sort of artifacts of the heyday of the railroad industry. Um and, and they mm-hmm. think of it as, you know, a place where there are farmers. But in fact, it's a place that's pretty industrial and has always been, you know, since the late 19th century. And a lot of that industry moves around a lot. I mean, I'm from a place where there are, mm-hmm. you know, aircraft factories. And sometimes they are going great guns and sometimes they aren't. And, and, uh, and, right. and, 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 you know, the fortunes of Wichita, Kansas, where I'm from, really depend on that to a great degree. And so the fact that they have big city problems is no surprise to me. I mean, Wichita is a pretty big city. Yes, you're from Maryville. You would know that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a big city. Sure. And, uh, you know, there were race riots in my high school, <laughs> not to mention the drug trade. That yeah. was that was well, well known. So, I, yeah, I found it a little bit. I mean, I guess it was his service was, you know, sort of pointing out that this place is like a lot of other places. And uh, it's undergoing really significant changes. And some of them come with 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 some attendant social problems like methamphetamine use. Um, again, in that book as well, and, and I don't know, I haven't read it recently, but I don't think there's a single meth user who's a functional person in it. They're all tweakers. No, I, and, and, yeah, and, and I that is not that. my experience with meth users. Is that many of them are right. very functional that's individuals. That's- yeah, true. I mean, that, well, I mean, that's a, that's a very, a very common narrative. Anytime we talk about um, drug users in general, you know, we we hardly consider folks that that can manage a life. Um, I, I mentioned in in the book, um, and the, there's very similar things like uh, in Methland, you know, particularly about people that have disfigured themselves, uh, stealing right. anhydrous ammonia in the lab process. But um, a, a, a woman who um, brought her child to the emergency room and, and, you know, was later found that she had exposed the child to, um, her meth consumption. So she was smoking meth with, with the child in, in her house. And the, 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 the narrative of, of the news broadcast that, uh, that I took this from, um, really implied that, you know, a person who uses meth is not capable of loving their children. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, 
I, I don't think is, is necessarily no, that's not fair. true. And, uh, <laughs> it's just false. Yeah. Well, so, you know, these people can also have jobs and do have jobs and, you know, um, yeah. I mean, you mentioned, can, again, can yeah, again, to go back to the meatpacking industry, I know a little bit about it. Uh, I don't think people understand what it what it means to work in a, a meatpacking plant. I don't think they get it. <laughs> it's brutally hard work. Yeah, I, I lasted seven days when yeah. I was in my early twenties in, in, yeah. in Poria, Kansas, at the Iowa beef packing plant. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah it's, it's not fun at all. No, 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 it's not. And you would probably want to have stimulants too if you worked in one of those places. I know the sawmill kicked my yeah. ass, and I know people who have worked in the meatpacking industry, and it's just absolutely brutal. Um, so you know, I. I don't want to say that uh, th- these things are good for people, but it's understandable why they use them in this way. But this is right. a part of the narrative which is never mentioned. You know, we'll give school, school children tons of Adderall so that they can do better on their SAT. But when, you know, some guy that works in a, you know, meatpacking plant does meth so he can get through the day or two shifts or something, then that's, you know, of course, horrible. We can't have that. And he can't take care of his children and so on and so forth. Which you know is the ripest, right. ripest bullshit. If you'll part, pardon my French. Um, so uh, the, the the approach that that uh, you talk a lot about this, the approach that the, that law enforcement took to this was, I, I want to use the word meretricious, meaning that they they kind of used it as a, a, as a way to get uh, additional funding and to draw additional attention to themselves. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Oh sure. Uh, you know I, I I think that this follows. Uh, a pretty consistent pattern with law enforcement and policing in, in the United States um, and not just related to meth, but you know, a number of different social problems. I mean, the FBI was bolstered in the, in the late seventies when they were uh, facing potential budget cuts, uh, they were bolstered by the threat of serial murder. And they, they really played it, played it uh, into that threat to make sure that they were uh, viewed as necessary by the public. Uh, there's a really interesting book by Philip Jenkins. Again, who, who wrote a little bit about that. Um, so it, with, with meth, um, the, uh, the threat to the community, um, whether it be from labs or to children, um, brought in funding, does still bring in funding to states. Um, so part of the uh, 2008 um, stimulus uh, package uh, after the 2008 uh, crash uh, one of the things that was offered to states like Kansas was a rural law enforcement methamphetamine initiative, which you know was a fund of several million dollars uh, distributed directly to policing in states that had uh, already established a problem with uh, with meth. Um, so this could be this money was or can be used for things like um, in army style weapons. Um, body armor, these sorts of things, but also for um, anti-drug messaging and um, anti-drug education programs that are, are haven't been necessarily or haven't been shown to be necessarily useful or even in some cases harmful. So I'm talking about you know like dare style programs that mm-hmm. don't uh, enjoy a lot of empirical support. Um, there is a um, project, the Meth Project, which is the um, the brainchild of a billionaire named Thomas Siebel that lives in Montana, but basically it uses these really alarmist, grotesque, shocking ads um, as a way to um, deter uh, particularly youth uh, meth use. 
um, that also hasn't uh, enjoyed a lot of uh, empirical support. So, um, you know, this sort of, you know, the idea that this was a, uh, was and is a big issue for certain populations and certain uh, locations allowed policing to kind of get some things that they needed or get some things that they, they wanted and, and bring money uh, into the state um, from, from federal sources, but also at the state level, uh, local communities um, saw an increase in um, resources mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. directly related to, to, this, to this problem. So one thing that I, I, I find interesting is that I, I work with um, recovering addicts sometimes and particularly heroin addicts. And one of the things that has been popular uh, among clinicians and I think also increasingly among law enforcement agencies is a harm reduction strategy. In other words, don't throw these people in jail, give them some sort of maintenance so that uh, they won't have to engage in criminality to do whatever they're doing. This has been completely absent, as far as I can tell, from the war on methamphetamine. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And I think that part part of that, or maybe a reason for that, is you know, kind of the imagination of the meth user as being a super violent, erratic, quote unquote, tweaker that does yeah. absolutely horrible things because because of this drug or for this drug. So um, there's no harm reduction for for meth users. Um, just very stiff penalties. And, th- and this was one thing that I think I talked to Nick about when I was interviewing him about the book is that he has an anecdote in there where he, I think he walks into a bar and he, he more or less says that you can always identify somebody who's using methamphetamine. That is not my experience <laughs> at all. No, no, I think that's pretty unfair actually. Uh, and I try to make that point in, in um, the book and in other things I've written, particularly this idea that was proffered by the Faces of Meth program that came out of Multnomah, Oregon. Um, in the early 2000s, you know, the idea that meth absolutely ravish, ravishes the body of every user. Um, but some of the, the indicators that are, are, suge- are associated with meth, you know, thin frame, well, sure. Um, bad complexion, well, sure. Uh, bad teeth, well, sure. Um, but those things are also, um, you know, markers of other things like uh, not having good nutrition, uh, working long hours, not having health care. Um, you know, so I think it's very disingenuous to, to, to label or to create this idea of a face of mess that also might overlap with face of poverty or, you know, face of living in a highly, uh, you know, marginalized situation. Yeah. Um, and then also we know about people that, you know, use drugs a lot. Um, you know, people rarely just stick to one thing. So it's, it's very difficult to say that, you know a face is just the face of meth. It could also be a face of a number of different substances. Yeah. Um, you know, here in, in rural Kentucky, you'll hear people talk about Mountain Dew mouth. Mountain Dew mouth, right. That's funny. Mountain Dew mouth. It's an actual thing that, you know, people <laughs> insist is a, is a thing um, that, you know, the certain people, largely poor folks in, in you know, the, the reaches of, of, of some of the haulers here, supposedly live only on Mountain Dew and it yeah. rusts their teeth out. One of the first things um, the guys but, in Arkansas in the uh, sawmill told me was that Mountain Dew has the highest amount of caffeine in it of any soft drink <laughs> and that that's what I, I should think drink. I've heard that as well. I don't know if it's true, but that's what they said. 
heard that. It was before energy drinks came came into fashion, I guess. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Energy drinks. Now they definitely are yeah, no, those things are crazy. Um yeah. one of the things I do remember and uh I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about this was I don't know why I remember this, but meth mouth. Do you remember that? Sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and this was the um, idea that's, yeah, that that's, go ahead. That's one of the things that the the faces of meth program really uh played upon and the you know, the federal government, um Partnership for Drug-Free America really used as this really shocking sort of um, signifier of, of, of meth use was, you know, the t- tooth decay right. associated with it. But, they, you know, there's not – there's some disagreement on, on, even on this, um, but it's such a strong uh, cultural image that, you know, you have a hard time arguing against it with people. But there's research by dentists that suggests that uh, methamphetamine – use um, isn't any more um, problematic for oral health than, say, something like cocaine yeah. or smoking right. or, or a number of other things that you can do. So I think it was, again, a, a, useful, a useful marker. And I think the problematic thing is it becomes, it's, it's a misappl- often misapplied marker. So just like Redding said that you know, he can spot a, a meth user in a bar, you know, I had a, a police officer tell um, my aunt that. You know, he, 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 I mentioned this a little bit in the book, but yeah, you do. he came to um, the family farm and asked to hunt, kind of unsolicited, just showed up on the property and asked to hunt, hunt for birds on the property. And he remarked that as he drove through their little town, um, he was stunned by all the, all the meth heads that he saw. And, you know, this is a really small town. I'm talking four or 500 people. And I can't imagine there be, there being even that many people on the street to diagnose other than maybe the folks that were working at the trailer factory getting out for their lunch break and, you know, people that do hard work and, um, you know, just put in a hardship welding might look a little rough, yeah. but that isn't necessarily an indicator of drug use. So I think that's, that's kind of problematic logic, but it's, it's very popular and it, and it doesn't go away. No, it, it really doesn't. It's quite, it's quite true. And I, and I, as I say, I work with, I work with a lot more alcoholics than I do with drug addicts. And I can tell you most alcoholics do not brush their teeth. I'm telling you what, that's one of the first things to go. (laughs) It's one of the first things we tell them to do, too. You ought to brush your teeth. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, you got better things to do. So you've thought a lot about these things, and uh, we appreciate that quite a bit. Uh, I think you've tempered some of what has been said in the media. I'll call it sensationalism. I don't think you call it that, but I will, concerning uh, methamphetamines. what should we do about it? I would just look at our history, um, and, and particularly as it relates to drug control. Uh, we have a really well-documented history. It usually takes us, you know, we're now, uh, you know, even people that were involved in it, as we saw with the last uh, presidential election uh, with, you know, Hillary Clinton's remarks during her husband's presidency about uh, super predators. Yeah. You know, that was largely related to to the drug trade and in, in the the concern about cocaine. So, you know, it might, it might take us a few decades to start to admit that we were wrong, but we, we tend to get there. So we have a well-documented history of the things that we've done wrong. And I think that that would, it would be very useful if we would look at that history while we're in the midst of, uh, of a particular bout of concern and see what we've done wrong in the past and then try not to do that again. But I, up to this point, particularly in this country, particularly since the seventies, the and into the 80s, 
um, we've done the same thing over and over again. We might have tried a few harm reduction uh, projects here and there, but there hasn't been a sustained interest in doing anything uh, with illicit drugs and, and drug users other than treating them with police and prisons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now, um, there's a lot of uh, debate about the explosion or the, this so-called explosion of uh, o- opioid abuse. And particularly in the Northeast where you're at, yeah. um, you know, there's a variety of different uh, reasons for that. And there's some critique that, um, you know, the harm, you know, the arguments for harm reduction as it relates to opioids, particularly in the, in the Northeast, uh, is because opioids are particularly associated with um, middle-class white folks. And there may actually be some, some, some validity to that argument, but, um, you know, in Appalachia, there has been an issue with uh, opioids for a long time, and that hasn't been dealt with in a kind of a harm reduction sort of manner. These, and these mm-hmm. folks have been going to prison in Appalachia for uh, opioid use and possession for a long time. Um, so I think that having some long view of what has been done, um, might help us, you know, map a way forward, uh, with policy and even just basic cultural practices or, or our understanding of these issues. Um, I, I, you know, I'm very skeptical of, 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 of the term epidemic, uh, you know, even if it's actually appropriate to use, I don't find it all that helpful because it just sounds the alarm bells. And I think it leads, uh, to panic and in some cases paralysis, Mm -hmm. uh, for, for folks or, and definitely overreaction. Uh, You know, the history of drug control in the United States is definitely the history of overreaction for sure. Yeah. Um, so looking at our history, um, being mindful, uh, being critical consumers of news stories, um, being skeptical of the word epidemic, um, and then also, you know, being skeptical or at least questioning the idea that, as you pointed out, drug user is automatically a violent criminal uh, or irredeemable. Um, we have, you know, that's, you know, it's such a concrete entwinement, um, you know, in our popular culture, you know, in our imaginary that, you know, you use drugs, particularly you use a particular kind of drug, what, you know, other than maybe marijuana, you're automatically a violent criminal. And that's just not, that's not the case. We no, it's have, not, not at all. Uh, I have statistics that suggest that. Um, my experience doesn't necessarily suggest that, but the word on the street does suggest that. And we need to, I think we need to contest the word, word on the street because, you know, we end up treating all drug users like, you know, uh, violent, um, criminals. And, you know, we, we know what we do with those folks in this country. We, uh, we uh, put them in prison or worse. Yeah. You know? So what, what, ha- you know, this, and I, I, I don't know the answer to this question. What happens if you get caught with a few grams of methamphetamine in in Kentucky or someplace? Uh, yeah, I, don't, I haven't looked actually in the, in the, uh, for the guidelines in the state of Kentucky. Um, but in Kansas, uh, you're looking at jail time. Um, oh. you know, a sugar, a sugar packet of meth, regardless of, or sugar packet size of, of, uh, of meth, regardless of your criminal history is going to get you, uh, 12 months in prison. Wow. Um, so, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts do not collect, you know, do not pass code, do not collect $200. And if you're, associated with production, then you're looking at, you know, years, maybe upwards of a decade in prison. And, um, interestingly, um, when we talk about production, you know, 
they say necessity is the mother of invention. So with the pseudoephedrine restrictions, some people have figured out how to produce enough methamphetamine just for themselves in what amounts to a small two-liter pop bottle. So they right. call this the shake and bake method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Reading so you can put the pill and some chemicals in, in the pop bottle and, and get enough for your own consumption. But in the law's eyes, that's still production. production. So yeah. they, treat, they treat the two-liter uh, two pop bottle like they would treat a super lab in, in some in some instances and a two liter pop bottle can get you in Kansas at least can get you over ten years in prison. Yeah, yeah. So and, you know, again the striking um, the striking thing is is that I, I know from experiences with people I know, even in academia, that they go to their physician and they say, I'm having trouble concentrating and they immediately get a, a prescription for Adderall. Just like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I guess my recommendation, if you're thinking about doing methamphetamine, is go to your doctor. Tell, tell your, go doctor, to your doctor. They, yeah. Go to your doctor and tell your doctor you're having trouble uh, concentrating, <laughs> because uh, yeah. it's crazy we, to put somebody in jail for that stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, and we we should we should actually question you know why am I having a hard time uh, concentrating? Well, you know, maybe maybe we are maybe we're rejecting the idea of. Of, of long hours and, and tedium. And yeah. Maybe that's our body's natural defense against some of the stuff that we're asked to do. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a tough thing, and you're right. We're dealing with a, um, a kind of hysteria about um, opioid use here in the Northeast, and the people that I know who are now clean and have been you know, in that culture for a long time have an interesting hypothesis about it, and they say that the people that are ODing on it and course we have great sympathy for them are people that don't know what they're doing that they that they they just don't have enough experience with these drugs and because you know again just a a friend of mine a guy i know very well who was a a, a, he was a heroin addict for many years he said you know if you know what you're doing you'll never od um but obviously these people don't and that's the dangerous part of it is that they don't have the right information about how to do it i mean i'm not suggesting they do but or what's in the drug? Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. The, in, in Ohio and um, in Kentucky, there's been a, a number of overdose deaths uh, attributed to fentanyl. Fentanyl, so, yeah, is, is commonly yeah. It's, that's what they say. Again, I, my my friend is very skeptical of this, but he, he says, yeah, fentanyl is something. Yeah, okay. Cut it with fentanyl. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's a it's a kind of a sad thing. Um, my heart bleeds for the Midwest, both in the sense that I'm from there and that uh, maybe they are suffering this thing, and I, I hope for harm reduction strategies. I guess I'm part of a harm reduction strategy myself, so I'm biased. <laughs> well, yeah, I prefer that over, you know, our, our current course for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Well, Travis, we've taken up a lot of your time today and I really appreciate it. So could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah. You know, after this book, I started, uh, you know, coincidentally being interested in police violence. So I've, I'm working on a book on police violence. It looks at, at uh, that topic in, in a similar sort of way as the uh, Meth Wars did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I hope you come back on the show when you're done with that project and the book comes out. Definitely get in touch with me, okay? Glad to. All right. Well, let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast, we've been talking to Travis Lineman about his book, Meth Wars, Police Media Power, and it's out from New York University Press, 2016. So thank you, Travis, for being on the show. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for listening. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon. 